We're going to be in John chapter 17 today. Fairly famous passage. It's uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. So I'm going to have you guys stand up. But as I read this, um, I want you guys to let this sort of wash over you as Jesus' prayer for you. Because that's actually what it is. So um, if you don't have a Bible, though, the words will be up on the screen. Um, otherwise, I, I'd even encourage you, like, bow your head, close your eyes, whatever, whatever helps you get in the frame of mind to hear this as Jesus' prayer for you. So here we go. John chapter 17, <clears throat> verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given, that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction." that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for they, their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even the world does not know you. I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. It's the word of God. Father, 
these are some of the most inspirational, holy, joyful words ever said on earth. It came from your faithful son, Jesus Christ. Uh, the man, God-man, who stepped out of heaven to secure our salvation, our eternal life. And because of that, we can have much joy. Lord, I pray this morning that, uh, as Matt said, this is a familiar passage to all of us, but let it wash over us anew. And, and, and where we are weak, that it would make our faith strong. And where we are ignorant, it would give us wisdom. And where we have sorrow, it would bring us joy knowing that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Savior, is interceding for us as we speak right now. That is, gives us the comfort of all comforts. And let that make that a, a reality, not only intellectually in our head, but also in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> all right. Yes, I'm always... Uh, these days, you know, early on when we were church planting, we'd, we'd meet in a school gym or something, and we'd have the holiday like today, and we're like, it'd be like me, my family, and like two other people, and we'd get some visitors that would eventually come in, and we're like, we're church planting, and they'd be like, you know, they always look at us like, oh, where is everyone? Like we're some kind of cult or something, and it was always, it, it always just wrecked my nerves. And so right now I feel like we're still in a mega church compared to those days. So I'm glad that you guys showed up. Our family, we got, we got all my girls are down in Denver right now. I got a son on his way to Arizona. I got another son who's in Utah. And so it's just me and Nate holding down the fort today. So we're going to have a good time. So, uh, um, let's, uh, let's enjoy, uh, the spring break and the holidays that we get. With that, John 17, uh, I've entitled the message, the final but not final prayer of Jesus. The final, but not the final prayer of Jesus. Let me start off with a question. If, if you knew, if you knew without a shadow of a doubt, that you would have 12 to 24 hours to live, what would be on your heart? How would you pray, assuming that you would pray? I'm assuming that most people in here would pray. Uh, what would you pray? Maybe, maybe it'd be like, man, the Lord, I'm not ready to go yet. You know, can you extend the, my time on this earth? Can you heal me? Can you let death pass? Or maybe it's like you will pray for your family, you know, uh, that they would be uh, provided for. There would be provision. There would be uh, security. They would, they would live a long life of, of peace and joy and happiness. Of course, you're going to pray for your dog, right? We're going to pray for our dog. Um, that's, a, that's a must. And I, I guess you could pray for your cats if you're into that kind of thing. You know, I know there's a, a couple cat lovers in here. Um, that, that's okay. But what would you pray for? What would be on your heart, your, your final moments here on earth? Well, this morning in John 17, we see exactly what is on the Lord Jesus Christ's heart in his final hours. Literally, we have his prayer. We know soon, in a couple hours, he'll be arrested, he'll be put on trial, he'll be found guilty, he'll be beaten and flogged, he will be then crucified, and he will die on the cross. This is what's about to happen in his next 12 hours or so. And so now, this morning, we get to look, or we get to read, we get to listen to one of the last prayers of Jesus while he was on this earth. And what's cool is it's, it's almost as if we are there. 
with his disciples, seeing Jesus and hearing Jesus pray for them and for us. I mean, this is this is absolutely an amazing part of Scripture. Now, of course, all the Bible is sacred and holy, penned by the Holy Spirit through men. But this in particular has some weight to it, has some glory to it that maybe others don't have. And so this is an amazing privilege that we have John 17 and that we get to, to look at it. One said this about John 17, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God Himself in John 17. So we are on holy ground here in John 17. In John 17, we get a glimpse into Jesus' heart right before His death. We get to see what He is thinking about, what He is mulling over in His mind. And also how He, in this time of, of stress that He's about to enter, this persecution, He's also mindful of His disciples of his 11 disciples who are there. He sees that they have trouble. We've been seeing this over since John chapter 13. Jesus said, I'm going away, I'm going away. And, and they're starting to freak out. What do you mean you're going away? We've, we've given our last three years to, to follow you. Now you're going to go away and leave us? And so they're a little troubled. So Jesus, knowing this, says, hey, let me pray for you. Just as we do today, when we see a, a friend or family member or, or someone here at the church that, hey, they're struggling, they're, they're battling something, they're, there's something that's troubling them, what do we do? Hey, let me pray for you. This is what Jesus is doing. He's praying for his disciples. What an incredible picture. The incredible thing is, though, we see is that Jesus not only has in view in the immediate context with his disciples, but also for you and me. We're, we're also in his mind during this prayer. So when you face trouble, when you face difficulty, know this, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is praying for you and has prayed for you. That's an incredible thought and a comforting thought, in particular if you're going through any kind of persecution or trial right now. Jesus is praying for you as we will see. Well, in this narrative, we see Jesus' prayer break down into three real natural sections, which is awesome, because usually in a narrative, you don't have such a three natural breaks, but we do. So I'm going to give you the outline today. One, we see Jesus prays for himself. Two, we see Jesus prays for his disciples. And then three, we see Jesus prays for all those who will believe. So let's look at first, Jesus prays for himself in verses one through five. It said, when Jesus had spoken these words, he, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now that phrase, the hour has come, we're real familiar with it. We were first introduced to it in John chapter 2 at the, at the, uh, the, the wedding where Jesus turned the water into wine. Um, that, that phrase, the hour has come. The hour has come means the hour is his death. And, and, and throughout the Gospels, when they say the, the word, the hour has come, it says the hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. Well, now the hour has come. The time for Jesus to now be our substitute on the cross has arrived. And in a couple hours, he will be hung on the cross. So the hour has come, speaking about his death, to glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have been given him all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him, in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished 
the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here we see first Jesus prays for himself, and Jesus asks the Father a very specific request. Father, can I have the glory that I had with you from the beginning? Uh, glorify your son. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. This is the prayer request of Jesus. Well, then the natural question is, well, what is the glory that Jesus is asking about? And of course, he gives us the answer in verse 5. The, the glory for which Jesus prays is the glory that he had with the Father before the world ever existed. You see, in a nutshell, Jesus is asking, he's saying, Lord, I have completed the work that you have given me. I have completed the assignment that I was sent to, uh, on earth for, to accomplish. And that was to secure salvation for all those who believe in me, who believe that I have been sent from you, who believe that I am the living word, the living water, the bread of life. I have accomplished that. I have secured that. And now Jesus is saying, I'm ready to come back home. I'm ready to go back home to be with you and to enjoy the glory that we had with one another. That's what Jesus is asking for in a nutshell. He's ready to be reunited with his Father in glory, in heaven. You see, we know that Jesus' life didn't begin when he was born, right, with Mary and Joseph. His life didn't begin there. He's the second member of the Trinity. He's always been eternal. He's always existed, but for a blink in eternity, so that we could be saved, so that he could secure eternal life, he had to become man. He had to be born in that major. He had to grow up and, and keep the law with his active obedience, living the perfect life in our place, keeping the covenant perfectly. And then soon we'll see that he, by his passive obedience, him dying on the cross would secure our salvation. Jesus now is ready to go home. And now accomplish that, he says that in verse 4. He says, I've accomplished this. Lord, can I now come home? Now, here's a real simple thought for us. Can this not also be our prayer? Can this not also be our prayer as well? Longing for heaven, longing for our home. We know Scripture says that we are aliens. We are sojourners passing through this world. How is the longing for heaven in your heart? Now, we're not getting the same glory as, as Jesus and the Father have. Obviously, that's their glory to them alone. But there is a glorification that positionally we have right now, but practically we're not feeling it. But when we get to heaven, we will. We will receive that glory when we go to our final home, heaven, the place where Jesus is preparing a room for us for those who believe, for those who have eternal life. You see, when we talk about eternal life here too, sometimes we, we think about eternal life just as in, in, in view of a time clause. Oh, I'll be somewhere for eternity. It's a, it's, I'll be there for a long, 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 long time. That's what we think when we think about eternal life. But eternal life is more than just a, a duration. The eternal life here, the, the word zoe means a quality of life. So when you think of eternal life, the, the, Jesus speaks of a quality of life. He's speaking of the glorification that you and I will receive when we go to our final home. That's what he's talking about, eternal life. He's talking about more than just a time clause. He's talking about a quality, a, a glorification that we will practically experience from our positional reality right now. 
Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And here is verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Are you longing for that glorification? Are you longing, just like Jesus was longing, to be reunited with his Father, to go back home? How often do you think about that? I think as you get older, you think about it more. Uh, for me in particular, as, as I'm you know, 46 now, uh, I am begging, I am thinking, I am praying more to go back home with Jesus. To Lord, just come. And I turn on the TV, you hear all the, the racket going on, all the anger, all the angst. And you're just like, man, put an end to it, Lord. Come back home. Come back so we can go back home with you. Moses longed for it in Exodus 33. He had, he had a desire to see God's glory. He was so enthralled with who the Lord was. And we have a much clearer picture because now we're looking back on what Jesus has. Do you long for glory to be back home with Jesus? This is the longing of Jesus to get back home to the Father. And if it's his longing... Shouldn't it be our longing as well? That makes us to the second point. Jesus prays for his disciples and the believers in that day, verses 5 through 19. Look at verse 5. He said, I've manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours was uh, yours, they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word, and now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I have came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. So we see now is, is Jesus is, is, is real focused. Now, when it says, I'm, I'm not praying for the world, it doesn't mean he doesn't care for the world, right? For God so loved the world. That's why he came. Uh, he stood over Jerusalem one time, and he, and he wept over Jerusalem. Why? Because they did not receive him as their own. He came to seek and save that was lost. So Jesus loves the world, but Jesus also loves us, believers, those whom Christ purposed, uh, purchased in a very specific and special way. And it is here that we get his attention for his prayers. Here we read that Jesus has a specific group he's praying for, and I believe in this context, the immediate context, it's referring to the 11 um, disciples, but also I think he has in mind Lazarus, Mary, Martha, maybe Joseph of Arimathea, maybe Zacchaeus, all those that have put their faith and trust in him. These are who he's praying for. Look at verse 5. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours was theirs, and you gave them to me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. Specific. Again, the disciples and those who believe in me. I'm not praying for the world, but those who you have given me. That verb, given, gave, give, is used six times in these four verses. And four of those times, it refers to God the Father giving us to Jesus. I want you to let that set in a little bit. Why is that so important? Why is that so profound? Have you ever thought of yourself as a gift to Jesus? Because that's what you are. The Father gives you as a gift to Jesus. Just let that sink in 
for a second. Jesus sees you as a gift from the Father. How wonderful is that? Some of you right now think, man, I'm not like a, I'm not like a good gift. I'm like a piece of coal to the, to the Father, right? I mean, to, the, to Jesus. No, you're a good gift from the Father to the Son. I'm sure there's, there's a saying that most probably everyone in their lifetime has uh, heard or, or maybe said to someone. It goes something like this. Uh, uh, oh, who do you think you are? God's what? God's what? His gift to the world, right? Who do you think you are, Aaron? Do you think you're God's gift to the world? I heard that a couple times back in my day, you know, and probably deserved it. A little pride, I'm sure. I'm sure. And of course, we're going to say now, in Christ, no, we don't think we're God's gift to the world. We think we're God the Father's gift to the Son. What a beautiful thought. Now, if someone does say that to you, you're probably going to get the, you know, the stink eye. They're going to probably look at you a little crazy. Um, and so use the Holy Spirit discernment whether or not to let them know that you're a gift from the Father to the Son or not. You know, use your discernment. But still, it's a wonderful way in which to view our lives, so that we are a gift from the Father to the Son. So what are Jesus' prayer requests for the disciples and his followers? We see that he gives a couple. First request we see in verses 11 through 16. The first prayer request kind of revolves around this verb keep or kept. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Then look at verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but you Keep them from the evil one. So this is the prayer, the first prayer request we see from Jesus for his disciples and those who believe in in that day and age, that that the Father would keep them, that he would protect them, that he would um, guard them, that he would attend to them. And there's three reasons why Jesus asked the Father to protect or keep or guard them. We see again in verse 11, one of the reasons why is because Jesus is leaving. He's going away. Um, we, we see in 12 through 14, he talks about, as I was with them these past three and a half years, I was the one guarding them. I was the one protecting them. I was protecting them from uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. I was protecting them from uh, others in the community. I was protecting them, but I am going away. We see, and I just want to address this real quickly, it says in verse 12 that I have guarded them And not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction. And the reason why Judas was lost wasn't because Jesus lost him. That there was some defect, that Jesus missed it. No, it was, we know that Judas is a son of destruction. He was never in the sheep fold to begin with. Therefore, Jesus didn't protect him. He allowed him to go the way in which scripture would prophesy Jesus did not lose, and there was not an inability on Jesus to keep Judas. Judas was never in the fold. And the promises in which God keeps his people and protects them and keeps them is those for those who who believe in Jesus, for those sheep that are in the sheep fold. So we see that. The second reason we see in verse 14, it's it's this the world, to keep them from the world. The the systems and the philosophies rebelling against Jesus. Um, this, This system, this philosophy, this different kingdom hates the eleven, and those who believe him. And the evil one, Satan, the prince of this world, wants to harm them, as we see in verse 15. And then finally, the third one, which Daniel covered really last year, is he wants us to have joy. He wants us to keep and have that joy 
uh, and that it may be fulfilled. That Verse 13, but now I'm coming to you that these things I speak that so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So those are the three reasons why uh, the Lord keeps or protects or Jesus makes that request on behalf of the Father. He said again, the, the disciples are sitting there. They're with Jesus, and they hear Jesus ask God the Father for this request on their behalf. Can you imagine sitting there, and Jesus is praying, and he says, God the Father, I want you, the creator of the universe, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, will you please keep, protect, guard these disciples, my disciples, can you imagine being there and hearing that? Holy cow, that would be incredible, wouldn't it? There would be a peace that should come over your soul at that moment. It's like, man, Jesus was pretty good. Which They know he's God, but we're going to get God the Father now. We're going to get Big Daddy now watching over us, right? How incredible is that going to be? Let me ask you a question. Do you think that sunk into the disciples? Do you, do you think that, that that made sense to them? Well, maybe in the, in the very initial stages, right in the first next couple weeks, next 40 days, they were still kind of freaking out, right, because they were up in the upper room in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 1. But I think after when the Spirit was sent and Jesus said, hey, I'm going to send the Spirit. He's going to remind you of all these things. I think that they got it. In particular, Peter. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.5, talking about this salvation. He says, this salvation is unfading. Listen to the words. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. You think it sunk into Peter? He was like, oh yeah, I remember when Jesus prayed that for me. And now he's, re, he's given that to us. Yep. Prayer heard, prayer answered. It's like Jesus and God the Father, like the perfect secret, uh, secret service agent duos, Right? In that fact, think about it. Here's Jesus, he's protecting them in their, their three years. He's called them, he's protecting them. And then all of a sudden, he's about to take the bullet for them, right? In a couple hours, he's about to hang on the cross and take the bullet for these disciples. And then he raises again, he gets a little vacation, and then God the Father comes in and takes care of the rest while Jesus is with him in heaven. What an incredible prayer. And he also prays this, not only to, to protect them, that God the Father's power would protect them, but in verse 15, he prays not only that, again, they would, they would not be taken out of the world, but they would be kept attended to carefully by God while they were in the world. While they were in the world. So what does it look like? What does it mean for the Lord to protect us while we're in the world? And that leads us to our second prayer request from Jesus. There are a number of ways, but here Jesus specifically says, we will be protected through the Word of God. We will be protected by God the Father and the Spirit sanctifying us by His Word, in His Word. Look at John 17, 17. Sanctify them. That means set them apart in character and service. Let them become more and more like Christ. As you continue to, to, to meditate and dive in and to eat this world, it, it does something to you. It transforms you and I. We become more like Christ. Our, our character is sharpened. Our, our service is more joyful and filled with love and sacrifice. We look like Jesus. God uses his word, his truth, primarily to grow us and protect us and sanctify us. This is what Jesus is praying for for his disciples. And this is, this is why we, we, we focus on 
the preaching of the word here at the crossing. That, that the majority of our time here, 45 minutes or so, is going to be to, to preach God's word. Why? Because this is the way in which God primarily sanctifies you and me. It's through his word. It's through his word. There are a lot of churches that will sing for 30 minutes and have a 20-minute message. That's cool, great. But here, we're going to sing for 20 minutes, and we're going to get in God's Word. The good thing about our worship is we're singing Scripture as well. It's not Jesus is my boyfriend kind of music that those other churches sing, all right? But this is why we give such clear attention and, and proclamation of His Word and time. God's Word protects us from error and ignorance and the humanistic philosophies that's so prevalent in our culture. That's culture is trying to sway us and, and try to change our, our understanding on how we are to think about the meaning of life, the, the purpose of work, uh, how to view money, how to view gender, how to view marriages, and all the other hot topics and the social issues in our culture. It's God's Word that informs us. It's God's Word that protects us. It's Jesus praying for our protection through the sanctification of his word. Simply stated, the greatest way to be protected from a lie is to know the truth. Is to know the truth. Jesus knows this, and therefore he prays for our sanctification through his holy scriptures. And it's during this process that Jesus now sends us out into the world. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I am sending them. So this is what we see. As the sanctification process is happening, there's something else that's happening, that he is sending us out into the world to be light in the darkness. You see, there's there's an error that some Christians take um, when they view this process of sanctification, or actually when they view this process of protecting. They might not fully believe that God can protect them, so they're going to take it upon themselves. And what they do is they separate themselves from the world. They, they isolate themselves from the world. Uh, it's known as the fortress mentality. The world is bad and everything in it. Every, and, I, and, and man, I can't, I can't be contaminated by the world. I can't let my kids be contaminated by the world. If the world gets a hold of it, okay, that, I understand the, the meaning behind it, but it goes to an extreme where you separate yourselves out from the world. Jesus says, this is wrong. This is not going to happen. I am sending you into the world. Don't take that isolated mentality. In other words, do this instead. Here's another word. Don't isolate yourselves, but permeate. Permeate. That word, permeate the world. Spread throughout. Pervade the world. Uh, let your lives uh, shine as a light and pierce the darkness. See, you have hope. That's what you learn when, when God is sanctifying, He's growing you in holiness. You are now the, the, the instruments in which God is going to reach those who are in the darkness. How about this for a second? You're going to be the instruments to make wolves sheep. Think about that. God is going to use you and your life and and the gospel message in which you proclaim to make wolves sheep. You can't do that if you're hiding behind a wall, if you never engage with the world and those who don't know Jesus, right? We are called to permeate this world, which also also helps us go to the the opposite extreme of of the air, is that I'm going to go uh, uh, permeate the world, but I'm just going to, there's no distinction between you and the world, 
You're going to go minister to your buddies, but you never bring in uh, the, the sanctifying truth of God's word. You're a Christian by name only, but your actions say something totally different. That also is an extreme to avoid. We're not to isolate and we're not to not be distinct. We're to permeate. They should see a difference. Matthew 6 says this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the world. What was salt used for back then? Salt was used there to preserve meat and foods, to, to make them last longer. The salt had to touch the meat for it to be effective, right? We as Christians have to be in the world to engage those who do not know Jesus. We need to be salt. The salt permeated the meat and preserved it. David Platt said this, Our mission is not to be disinfected Christians and put them on the shelf, but to disciple them and put them into service. So that's how we, that's how we engage the culture. That's how God protects us, right? by sanctifying us, but then he sends us out so that we can be a witness for those who, know, who don't know Jesus. And third, and finally, we see this. We see Jesus prays for those who will future believe. Verses 20 through 26. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. How about that request? Did you hear what I, did you hear what I just read? Let me read it again. I do not ask for these only, the disciples that are with him right there, those Lazarus, Mary, Martha, those there, but for those who what? Will believe. Future believers. Do you know who he's talking about there? You and me. So in this hour, Jesus has you and me on his mind, on his heart. What an incredible thought that is. I don't ask for these only, but those who will believe. So Jesus had you in mind on his final hours here on earth. We see two requests that Jesus makes on our behalf. First, he prays for unity, John 17, 21. So that they may be all one, just as you, the Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be even one, as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you have loved me. Now, we might look at this request and look around in, in, our, in our day and age and go, well, that, that request didn't get answered, right? I mean, we can turn to Acts, and all of a sudden we see immediately in the very beginning of Acts, we see Paul and Barnabas, they have a dispute. They're not unified. They split up. Later on, we see who? Paul and um, Peter. They have a little dispute in Galatians. The, they split up. We, we look around our landscape today, and we see, why are there so many denominations in the Christian church? This prayer was not answered. And in fact... Of course, here's where God's Word protects us and helps us think correctly about the unity that Christ is talking about and requesting it. And I would say that it is answered. You see, one said this, unity isn't something you produce, okay? Unity isn't something you produce. It is something that you already have. It is something that's already been done. It's a fact. It's a reality. Whether you enjoy it or not, you have it. What do I mean by that? In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. What? We are all 
one in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and there are many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, there is uh, one Lord, one Spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, uh, one God and Father over all. There is unity already had and made and accomplished by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Paul says it in three places, and there's other places as well. So unity is true. It's good news. It's already happened. We have it. The question is, do we exercise it? See, unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we're all going to agree on everything and speak the same way and believe everything the exact same way. And when we don't do that, we're like, oh, no, your guys aren't unified. That's not what unity means. And that's not what Christ is talking about. There's a phrase that, that the church has used for centuries that have helped us with unity. It goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. Uh, most, some people attribute it all the way back to Augustine, this phrase. So, so what does that mean? How does this help us think about unity? Well, in essentials, what is the essentials? And the essentials, unity. Uh, I, I would say that the essentials are the foundations of what the Christian faith is about. And all Christians believe are unified on what the uh, essentials are. It's, it's the gospel, it's how someone is saved, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You're not a Christian if you don't believe that. But you have to repent of your sins and trust in what Christ has done for you on the cross. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, you believe that. That is a unifying doctrine that doesn't matter what creed, um, race, denomination, or wherever you come from, we all agree on that. That this is God's word. It's an errant it, it, it's holy. It's his word written to us. They're, these 66 books are, are what lead, guide, and direct our steps. Uh, the Trinity, the virgin birth, these are all essentials that every Christian who's truly a Christian believes on. So in that, we are unified. We are unified. And then you have the, the non-essentials. And the non-essentials are sometimes called secondary issues. And, and this is where we can debate vigorously and, and disagree, but we do it um, in our freedom, but we do it with love. So what would be some of those? Uh, eschatology, the, the study of the end times, right? Are you pre, post? You know, what are you? Are you covenantal? Are you dispensational? You know, are you a, a tribulation? Is there going to be a tribulation? If it's so, when is it going to be? I mean, all those arguments, right? Um, it's the, the gifts of the Spirit. Are the gifts of the Spirit for today? Are they not for today? You know, it's the, um, the, the, the creation. Are you a, an old earth guy or a young earth guy, right? There are Christians on both sides of the fence of all of these secondary issues. And, and they can debate, and there's, there's freedom there. There's freedom there. But the foundation is, in all things, charity, love. So that's a phrase that could help us, that could help you when you're talking to individuals and they're saying, well, there's so much division uh, among the Christian church. Well, no, one, positionally, we already have it in Christ, right? Um, and we use this phrase, in essentials. When we talk about the essentials, all Christians believe on the essentials or else they wouldn't be Christian. And then there are the secondary uh, issues that make up like denominations and stuff. So positionally, you know, we are unified. We have it. But obviously we'd be deceived. I'd be deceiving you if you said there's not a practicality to it in our day and age. If there not, cannot be some disunity in our day and age. And that's why Jesus prays 
that we would experience unity. Just as, again, it's a Trinitarian unity, just as the Father and Him and the Holy Spirit have unity, that we would have and experience that as well here on earth. Psalm 133.1 is a great, great portion of Scripture that deals with unity. It says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. In verse 4, For there, for there, the Lord has committed or commanded the blessing life forevermore. So when you get a group of people who rally around the essentials of Jesus and they, they walk in um, unity, God blesses them. God blesses their movement. Jesus also said something very similar. He said in a negative way, a kingdom divided cannot stand and a house divided cannot stand. But then the converse is true, right? A kingdom united can stand and will stand and the house united will also stand. Unity is a huge part of the Christian church. And that's why Jesus prayed for it. And that's why God the Father answered it. Because there is, there is something that's... Disunity can be one of the most destructive forces in the church. Many of us have maybe experienced that in some of the, the churches that we have um, gone to. Maybe there's been some relational disunity with some, some Christians that um, something comes up and disunity has, has um, raised its uh, head and, and it has caused you to split. There's no life in disunity, as Psalm 133 says. Disunity brings confusion and frustration and, and pride and stress and really takes away years from your life where unity brings peace, joy, direction, blessing, and adds years to your life. I just pause and I just think, man, how how this prayer from Jesus has been answered for us at the crossing. That we start out as a little church plant, and by God's grace, eight years later, we're we're still we're still going. And we're thriving because of the grace of God. Most church plants are done within the first year. They can't even get traction. But by God's grace, he's, he's chosen to bless us. And I believe one of the reasons why he has is because we're unified. We have a, a, a firm conviction and hold true to the essentials of the Christian faith and will not waver. And will not waver. Uh, it, it flows down into our mission statement to love God and live in gospel community, to leave a legacy where we live, work, and play. We're unified on that. And when people come in and try to, try to change the direction of the church, especially it, when we were younger, we had guys, we, we, we called them wolves. They'd come in and they, they wanted to kind of change the direction and, and take us a direction that, that was in contrary to God's word. They are no longer here to say that politely, Right? God protected us. There's unity in the body. This is a request of Jesus, and I believe that is being answered in this body, but not only in this body, but in the church universal. You have great organizations that are, are cross-pollinating, that are, uh, one would be like for Together for the Gospel, one would be like the Gospel Coalition, where you have these guys and gals from many different denominations, Presbyterians and Baptists, and um, what, do we got, uh, what else we got? We got um, Anglicans and, and Lutherans, and they're, and they're all coming together around the essentials. Why? Because... They want to stand united and show the world a united front on what the Christian faith is about and that they are unified. They're unified in the essentials. And in the non-essentials, there's liberty and there's great debate and there's sharpening of one another, but everything is done in love. So we see this throughout the church today. So unity is the first thing that he prays for, for you, for me, for the, the future believers. And second, we see that Jesus prays for us to see the glory of Jesus through love in verses 24 through 26. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be where I am, to see my glory that you had given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. Verse 26, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. One of the greatest assets as a Christian and as a church is that the love of Christ would abide and be displayed in words and actions from you and me. Jesus understands this. He knows this. He, he began his upper discourse with love in John chapter 13, and he ends it here in John chapter 17. In John chapter 13, this is what he says. He says in verse 1, Now beside, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then we see again the end, the last verse in 26, that I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And then we turn the page and we start to see a lot of black ink. The red letter says, has began to cease. This is what Jesus primarily wants to get through to his disciples. The Christian faith is about love, that we are called to be lovers of people. Interesting, there's this church, that uh, big church that does a, a lot of church surveys and, over, and, and, and gleans information from all these surveys. And this is what it says. When asked the question, why do you come back to a church after having visited the answer is not music. They say that's usually generally number three. Or the preaching, that's generally number two. They said the number one answer, the reason why people come back to a body is because they felt loved. They felt loved. That's what, that's what brings them back. And, and that makes sense, right? I'll listen to that survey. I'll, I'll take that survey for, for what it says to be true. Why? Because this is what the Scriptures say. Jesus said this in 1335, by this all men will know that you're my disciples by how awesome the music is? No. By how great the preaching is? No. But well, how? By how you love each other. Love is the foundation. Now, love is informed by, by good music and love is informed by preaching, right? It's informed and people come in because Christ has loved us, we can love them. But that's what it is. It's love. That's why Jesus begins the upper room discourse and ends it. This is what he wants to get through to his people. This is one of the requests of Jesus before he died, that we would experience the love of the Father towards Jesus. And so he's praying for this. He has us in mind before he goes to the cross. Well, Jesus goes to the cross, as we know. We're going to celebrate that in a, in, a, in a couple weeks. He dies, and then three days later, he rises again. Here's what's even more amazing, is that not only did he pray for us then, but as we already alluded to, he's praying for us right now. Romans 8 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is alive, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's interceding for us. That word interceding means praying for us. He's praying for us right now. It says the same thing very similar in, in Hebrews chapter 7. So what is he praying for? Probably... He's praying for exactly what he was praying for us in John 17, right? 
He's praying, man, I can't wait for them to experience the glory of the Father. He, he's, he's praying for our protection, to be kept by the power of God, to, to be sanctified by the word of God, and then to be sent out and to be effective in our ministry for God in a world that needs us so bad. He's praying for our unity, and he's praying for our love. Right now. What a beautiful, beautiful thought. If these were the last things on Jesus' mind before he went to the cross, shouldn't these also, while we're alive, be some of the things that we think about most often? I think so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this prayer. As we've just gone through, we've seen how glorious and wonderful, how meaningful, how intimate it is, not only for you, but for us. You see us as a gift. You see us as a gift that you protect us for eternity, that you sent your Son to to live and die on the cross so that we may be forgiven. And we repent of our sins and trust in you. We receive this eternal life, not just life that will last for a very long time, but a, a quality of life that we receive the glory in which you have given us. We long for that. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that has not yet repented and trusted in you, that they would do that now. They would see that, man, Jesus isn't praying for me right now. And I need him to pray for me. I need him to save me. I need to be in his fold. They can by repenting of their sins and trusting what you have done. And for those of us that have, Lord, may these be the things that are on our mind, as well as other things, but may these be the things that we may think about on a consistent basis and also pray for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.